when Aquinas talks about the Eucharist as a sign, as a sacrament, which for him fundamentally means a sacred sign, he says, you know, the, the Eucharist is a sign of present grace because we're united to Christ, through him to one another, through Christ to the Father, right? We get to unite our lives to Christ's sacrifice in the Eucharist. Then it's also a pledge of future glory. Welcome to Faith and Culture, a production of the Augustan Institute. Every week, we explore the glory of the Catholic faith and the beauty of Catholic culture. And now, here's the host of Faith and Culture, Joseph Pierce. Hello, I'm Joseph Pierce, and welcome to another Faith and Culture podcast of the Augustan Institute. And I'm delighted to have as my guest today, a returning guest we've had on before, my friend and colleague here at the Augustine Institute, uh, Professor John Seahorn. Hello, John. Delighted to be here, Joseph. Thanks for having me. And uh, John is an assistant professor of theology here at the graduate program, the Augustine Institute. I'm so blessed to have so many learned <laughs> scholars uh, with me, which allows me, of course, in these podcasts to touch some rather deep issues that are beyond my depth, but uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll stop me from drowning. <laughs> So, so today uh, we would like to discuss the Bible and the Eucharist. Now, yeah. you know, for, for someone such as myself, who's not a trained theologian, obviously I, I believe what the church believes, but I'm not sure I could argue very strongly to a Protestant about, you know, uh, where is the biblical foundation for the church's belief in sure. the Eucharist? So as you have obviously studied this, would you like to enlighten me and, and, and others? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Joseph. Uh, now, I mean, on the, on the one hand, I think, you know, we have to start by admitting that that if we just sort of look at the scriptures uh, superficially, sort of scanning for explicit Eucharistic language, it looks like we don't have a lot to go on, right? We have, uh, well, the institution narratives about right, the Last Supper in Matthew and Mark and Luke. You know, in John's Gospel, we've got John chapter 6, the Bread of Life discourse where Jesus talks about uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Uh, and we have a couple chapters in 1 Corinthians where St. Paul explicitly talks about uh, the Lord's Supper, right, the celebration of the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian community. Now, in terms of the, the kind of origin of the church's belief about the real presence uh, in the Eucharist, a whole lot can be said and a whole lot should be said. Uh, but the first and in some ways the last thing to say is simply this. Uh, when you look at the fathers of the church, uh, time and again, um, they simply say, look, Jesus said, this is my body, and I believe him. Right, right? yes. Simply, so uh, we take his words word. literally. We take his words literally That's because right. what, what, what yeah. other sense should we take them? Unless, and, and, you know, if he, Jesus tells us something, why would we look for meanings other than what he's actually told us, right? Yeah, even in, in the 13th century, St. Thomas Aquinas, who... Uh, in some ways is unsurpassed, I think, in um, his discussion of the mystery of transubstantiation and so forth. In one of his Eucharistic hymns, uh, he has a wonderful line where he simply says, I believe whatever the Son of God has said. Yes. yes. Because he is truth itself. And he says nothing is truer than truth itself. But so you know, be, even sorry, so, go on. yeah, just yeah, so being a literature person, not a theologian, mm. of course. Uh, I mean, I, I consider myself to be a Thomist, and I love the Summa, and I love St. Thomas's mind. But, 
but for me, the, 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 the St. Thomas Aquinas I love most is St. Thomas the Poet. Oh, absolutely. And certainly they, you know, those, uh, those hymns of his, those poems of his that we use during adoration, sure. uh, I, I just uh, just marvelous. But anyway, I, I go off on a, a literary tangent. Please, no, that's bring, all right. Bring us, yeah. back to, bring us back to Scripture. Well, come back. Yeah, coming back to Scripture. So, you know, even apart from kind of... Um, uh, you know, an apologetic approach to the question of the Eucharist in the Bible. One of the things I've found the closer I've looked at it is uh, in some ways you can see the Eucharist in the Bible almost as a kind of key, right? A key is very small, right? but it can open huge doors, right? <laughs> right? And, um, and in a way, we kind of have an image of this in Luke chapter 24, right? The wonderful story of the road to Emmaus, uh, when the risen Lord encounters these two disciples who don't recognize him. And he kind of upbraids them and says, how are you so you know, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that Moses and the prophets wrote concerning the Messiah? And he kind of walks them through. I mean, to be a fly on the wall at that Bible study, right, to hear what Jesus said uh, to them. But they still don't get it. And it's only when they arrive at Emmaus uh, and they sit down and the Lord breaks the bread and they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. And suddenly they say, didn't our hearts burn within us? And the meaning of the scriptures is unveiled for them uh, through this lens of the Eucharist. And this is something that, uh, that I see all over the place. Once we start reading scripture through this Eucharistic lens, uh, we can see really beautifully, I think, how the Lord's gift of himself on the cross in his resurrection and now to us uh, in the Eucharist fulfills so many different threads in sacred scripture. Yeah, and one thing interests me as well, when I, when I, do, when I can corner a, a, a theologian, as I'm now doing, <laughs> one thing interests me is, is the examples of how we use um, the fourfold exegesis of St. Thomas Aquinas uh, mm. with specific aspects of, of scripture so you know within the context of our present discussion which is uh, the bible and the eucharist mm-hmm. now how how what prefigurings of the eucharist do we see in the old testament yeah there are any number of them aquinas actually uh, addresses this this question specifically in his treatise on the eucharist in the summa and he says uh, that the most important one is the Paschal Lamb, right? The Passover Lamb, because Jesus, of course, celebrated the Last Supper in the context of uh, the Passover. Uh, St. Paul refers to the Eucharist in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 as our Passover. He says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Uh, therefore, let us keep the feast, right? But there are a number of others, and they're all important to kind of fill out the meaning of of the Eucharist. Uh, All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in our Lord's sacrifice. And since that one, that once for all sacrifice is made present in the Eucharist, uh, so too are all the sacrifices of the old law uh, fulfilled. Another really important one is the manna uh, in in the wilderness, Mm -hmm. right? And I have to say, one of the things that has struck me more and more, uh, kind of the deeper I go with this, uh, is that kind of already and not yet dynamic that we get uh, in the Eucharist, which actually relates very much to the four senses of Scripture, right? Um, when Aquinas talks about the Eucharist as a sign, right, as a sacrament, which, which for him fundamentally means a sacred sign, he says, you know, the, the Eucharist uh, is a sign in three different ways. It points backward, right, because we remember events in the past, not only Christ's sacrifice, but all the events of the Old Testament, right, the crossing of the Red Sea, God's uh, redemption of Israel from Egypt, from slavery, all these other types that Christ has fulfilled. So we remember those. 
We also uh, have here a sign of present grace because we're united to Christ, through him to one another, through Christ to the Father, right? We get to unite our lives to Christ's sacrifice uh, in the Eucharist. And so um, in, in that sense, it's very much like manna, right? That is, is our bread for the way as we journey toward heaven. But then it's also a sign. He says it's a pledge of future glory, right? We look forward to uh, the fulfillment of uh, the banquet of God's victory over over sin and death. Well, this is the uh, in encapsulation heaven. in many way of, of, of St. Thomas's fourfold uh, exegesis. Basically, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so we have the um, the allegorical dimension, mm-hmm. right? How looking back, looking the past, looking at how the Old and New Testament inform our understanding of the Eucharist. And then we look at the present, it's the moral dimension, right? Mm-hmm. What, what morally does our own reception of the Eucharist say to us? And, uh, right. and then... The, the anagogical, you know, how, how does it relate to our eternal destiny exactly right. in the yeah. future? So, again, trust St. Thomas to, to put things in a proverbial <laughs> nutshell. Now, but speaking of the Eucharist, I mean, we know that, um, you know that the Church is the mystical body of Christ. In other words, that Christ, if you like, mystically remains in salvation history, not simply through his presence in the Eucharist, although that's, of course, absolutely crucial, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, actually in the magisterium of, of the Church. So in what sense can we see the Church's mm-hmm. understanding of the Eucharist being brought to light in the Church's own tradition? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of a, a complicated question, actually. <laughs> right, well, so for starters, uh, Christ's presence um, in and as his mystical body uh, is actually dependent on the Eucharist. Right. right? Uh, uh, John Paul II's last encyclical was called um, uh, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, right? The church from the Eucharist. So we talk about how the Eucharist makes the church. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, right? The Eucharist unites us to Christ and so to one another, and it's what makes us uh, his mystical body, right? Um, and then uh, when, you, when you ask that question about the church's tradition, right, the reason we can trust that is because as his mystical body, the church shares in Christ's threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, okay. right? And so this is why... Could, could you unpack that for us? Yeah, the, so, uh, right, Christ fulfills kind of the... The whole, the whole um, trajectory of Israel's prophecy, because he himself is the word, right, in flesh. The same word that came to the prophets now has come to us himself in flesh, right? And, uh, and just as the priesthood uh, in the Old Testament stood between Israel and God to mediate between them, now we have one who is both truly a son of Abraham and the eternal son of God, right? Actually closing that gap completely, so fulfilling uh, priesthood, uniting God and man. And then, of course, he's he's the king of the universe. He's the word through whom all things are made and for whose sake uh, all things are made, who actually holds all things together and governs uh, all things. And he calls the church to participate uh, in those things in different ways, depending on our specific vocations, our states in life that he calls us to. But it's interesting to notice that the three munera, the three gifts or offices or duties of the ordained priesthood in the Catholic Church actually correspond to Jesus's offices, right? So what are those, those munera, those duties? Uh, teaching, sanctifying, and governing, right? So uh, the church teaches as a participation in Christ's prophethood, 
Uh, she sanctifies as a participation in his priesthood, uh, and she governs as a participation uh, in his kingship. Wow. Right? And so since it's a participation in those things, then as the magisterium uh, reflects over, over these centuries, right, we can trust that we're actually gaining a deeper insight into the identity that Christ has given us from the beginning as his mystical wow. body. Wow. I'm learning a great deal here, and I'm, I'm sure, <laughs> sure lots of other people are that are listening in. One other thing that that, that sort of strikes me, and it's all, maybe almost on a mystical level, uh, you know, the the, the, the word, the mm-hmm. logos. Mm-hmm. Um, now, within within the liturgy, obviously we have the liturgy of the word, which is the reading of scripture. Mm-hmm. But then, the Eucharist is 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 it is itself or himself the word. Mm-hmm. So, how how do you see the the connection, if you like, between mm-hmm. those two aspects of the mass or those two aspects of the word? Mm-hmm. In what sense is the word of God uh, in Scripture fulfilled in the presence of God in the sacrament? Yeah. Well, you know, here, first of all, we might just uh, stipulate with the church that they do go together, right? Sacrosanctum Concilium in Vatican II uh, talked about the inseparability of the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, that they form a single act of worship because it is the same Word who speaks to us in Scripture and who gives himself to us body, blood, soul, and divinity uh, in the Eucharist. And I think the model for this, once again, is Luke 24 and uh, the road to Emmaus, right? And uh, it's not as if once they got to Emmaus and recognized Jesus in the breaking of the bread, they said, well, thank God we can forget all that complicated Bible stuff now, right? (laughs) No, they were actually disposed for that recognition uh, through the scriptures, right? Uh, But they don't fully understand the scriptures until they receive him uh, in the Eucharist, right? right? And so we're called to be like those disciples uh, at Emmaus. And then we're sent out, hopefully, with joy just like them, right? Remember, they, they'd said to Jesus, stay with us because uh, the day is far spent, evening is falling, right? And so you, you kind of think they're going to hunker down. But then you got to notice that then after they recognize Jesus, they go back to Jerusalem because right. they're so filled with joy and the light of Christ that the nighttime doesn't matter anymore. Right. Right. So the spirit um, of evangelization, the original new evangelization. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think, uh, right, we, we absolutely need both of them, right? Um, at the end of the day, right, uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, um, and we do receive the one word who has proceeded eternally uh, from the mouth of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who made himself flesh for us, right? But that's, that's again, to fulfill the scriptures, right? Not to kind of replace them or supersede them. Wonderful. Well, John, uh, this has been as enlightening and as illuminating uh, as ever. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, And please do join me again. Will do. So my guest today uh, has been John Seahorn, who's an assistant professor of theology here at the graduate program of the Augustine Institute, one of my colleagues. And we've been talking and discussing the Bible and the Eucharist. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I'm your host, Joseph Pierce, and this has been another Faith and Culture podcast of the Augustine Institute. Until next time, goodbye and God bless. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Faith and Culture with Joseph Pierce. Faith and Culture is a production of the Augustine Institute. 
For more information, please visit us at faithandculture.com.